You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you are worshiping with us this morning. We are going to be reading from the book of Isaiah this morning, from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So if you would please open with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, this is where our text comes from this morning. Let's begin this morning by reading Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word uh, this morning. We pray that as we study it, Lord, you give us insight, Lord, that we would, we would see and sense the importance of the things that Isaiah saw and the impact that they had on him. Lord, may they have the similar impact on us. And may we respond to your question there at the end, just like Isaiah did when you asked, who will go? And he said, here I am, send me. Lord, we want to have that same response. We know that that response comes from seeing you, having a clear vision of you. So this morning, as we study your word, help us to see these things clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me ask you a question to begin with. Have you ever had something happen to you? Have you ever experienced something that was so profound or impacted you in such a deep way that it changed your entire perspective on life? Sometimes we call that a turning point. We might call it a wake-up call. There's these experiences that we have sometimes that change you, that impact you so deeply that you're never the same again. It changes the way that you think. It changes your entire perspective and approach to life from that day forward because of, of how deep and impacting that experience was. Well, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. Some of you probably have. But here in Isaiah chapter 6, we read, about, we read about an experience that Isaiah had where he says, this is what changed my entire perspective on life. This is the experience that set my life on a whole new course, gave me a whole new trajectory, a whole new direction. And as we look at this this morning, what I want you to see is that the basic elements of Isaiah's vision Isaiah's encounter with God, the basic elements of it are available for you and I to experience as well in Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And my hope is that just as Isaiah encountered God and it changed his whole perspective, the whole course of his life afterwards, my hope is that that same thing would happen for you and me as well, that we would see God and it would change our lives in a fundamental way. So we're doing a series right now called Remember the Prophets. 
Because in James chapter 5, verse 10, James says this, My friends, remember the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Take them as examples of patient endurance under suffering. So for the past few weeks and for the next several weeks, we are taking a look at some of the Old Testament prophets. We're doing what James tells us to do. Remember the prophets and take them as examples for endurance. So uh, what we're doing is really, rather than, we're going through the prophetic books, and rather than just looking purely at the message of what they spoke and what's written down, we're wanting to look at their lives, like James tells us to, who they were as people and how they as people are examples for us today. So you could maybe think of it as a, a biographical look at some of the prophets. Now, the title of today's message is A Vision of God. And in this series, what we're doing is we're going through the prophets chronologically. So, so far we've looked at Amos, and last week we looked at Hosea, and this week we're looking at Isaiah. We're going through the prophets chronologically. Now, something that can be kind of confusing when you're reading the prophetic books in your Bibles, let's say, you know, you're at home or doing your daily Bible reading, one of the things that can be confusing about the prophetic books is that the way they're organized and ordered in your Bibles is not chronological, right? It's not, they're not organized in the order that they happened historically. Rather, they're organized and arranged by size and by theme, not by the order that they happened in chronologically. So in this series, though, hopefully we can help you with that. What we're going to do is we're going to be looking at some of the prophets in chronological order. So, that, so far we looked, like I said, at Amos. Then we looked at Hosea. And, and we talked about how both Amos and Hosea, we talked over the past two weeks about how they preached in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, you might remember that at this time the nation of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. There was a rebellion in the time after Solomon the king. So David, you had Saul, David, Solomon. During the reign of those three kings, Israel was united under one kingdom. But in the time of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, there was a rebellion led by a guy named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam led this rebellion and the ten northern tribes broke away. They split off from Jerusalem. They wanted to cut ties with Jerusalem. They cut ties in every way, politically, financially, and spiritually. So they actually built their own religious center of worship in Samaria, which was, you might have heard before. That's in the northern part of Israel. And so you end up with these two kingdoms, the kingdom in the north called Israel and the kingdom in the south called Judah. And that's where Jerusalem is. So the past two weeks, we looked at Amos and Hosea. Now they both preached in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now at the same time, though, that Hosea was preaching in the north, there was a man named Isaiah who was beginning his ministry, but he preached in the south in the kingdom of Judah. So Isaiah ends up preaching for over 50 years, longer than any other prophet. He preaches for 50 years. And during his time as a prophet, the northern kingdom is carried off into exile. It's oh, defeated, you know, conquered by Assyria. They're carried off into exile, just as we read about, like Amos and Hosea warned them that that would happen if they continued in their same path. Well, during the time of Isaiah, the northern kingdom is carried off into exile and and. Isaiah's left in the south. Judah's not carried off. And so in the south where Isaiah's at, his ministry actually is listened to by some people. People heed his words of warning. And Isaiah gets to be part of a, a series of reforms that took place under a good king named Hezekiah. 
So if that name rings a bell, you know that Isaiah was ministering during the time of Hezekiah and these big reforms down in the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where, is, or where Jerusalem was. This book, the book of Isaiah, is the longest written prophecy in the Bible, the longest written prophecy. It's 66 chapters long. Did you know that Isaiah is also the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And a big reason for that is because Isaiah talks more about the coming Messiah than any other Old Testament prophet. He, he talks about him all the time. So as you're reading through Isaiah, you're reading prophecies about Jesus, these glimpses ahead into who the Messiah will be and what he's going to do. It's really exciting. And remember, like Sean mentioned earlier during communion, these things were all written over 700 years before Jesus was born. It's incredible. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, tells us something interesting about the book of Isaiah. Here's what it tells us, that this book is based on a vision that Isaiah had. So it's based on a vision. It says that in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the vision of Isaiah, king, or son of Amos, which he had concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And this vision, you could break down this vision into two major sections. And so chapters 1 through 39 are a warning. So the first part, chapters 1 through 39, are a warning of what will happen to the people if they continue on the path that they're on, this path of you know, empty religious practice and immorality. And in this vision, Isaiah sees them, and he describes seeing them being carried off into exile and being conquered by a foreign nation. Now, remember, this is before any of that happened. So then chapters 40 through 66 are not a warning, they're a promise of restoration. So in this vision, he says, hey, here's what's going to happen. Then he envisions them being carried off into exile. And then starting in chapter 40, he begins to have this other vision. It's still the same vision, but it's the different part of it where he's, he's saying, in exile, God is going to be with you. He will not forsake you even if you get carried off into exile. And he is going to restore you and he's going to bring you back to your homeland. Now, here's what's interesting. All of these things did eventually happen, but they did not happen until after Isaiah had died, a long time actually after Isaiah had died, which makes his prophecy all the more incredible. If you want to understand the time in which uh, Isaiah preached and what was going on culturally in Judah at this time, the best place to look is the first chapter of the book. It's been said that the first chapter of Isaiah is a microcosm of the entire book. And in this first chapter of Isaiah, we're not going to read it because our focus is on chapter 6 and, and this kind of biographical look at Isaiah. But just to give you some background, I, chapter 1 tells us a few things about the the time that he lived in Judah. It was characterized by a few things. Number one, it was characterized by immorality. We see that in verse 10. It was characterized by materialism and wealth. We see that in verse 11. It was characterized by empty religion. We see that in verses 11 through 15. It was characterized by a false sense of security. In verse 21, we see that. See, the people of Judah believed that God's judgment on the north 
Something like that could never happen to them. And the reason it could never happen to them, the reason God would never judge them like he had judged those guys up north was because of one thing mainly. And that is that the city of Jerusalem was in Judah. And they thought God would never allow a foreign army or foreign nation to come and attack Jerusalem. God would never bring judgment on Jerusalem. But what Isaiah warns them, starting in chapter 21 of chapter 1, is he says, no, that, that is a false sense of security. Like, don't think that, that I won't bring judgment on Jerusalem if they don't repent and turn back to me. And now, I don't know about you, but I can't help but see a few parallels there between their society at that time and our society in our time. I mean, just think about that list. Nominal religiosity, moral permissiveness, wealthy materialism, a false sense of security. Doesn't that describe our society that we live in today? And so what that means is that the message of Isaiah is incredibly relevant for today and the times that we live in today. We live in a world that's very much like the world that the people lived in that Isaiah preached to and preached this message to. And the key passage for understanding this book, if you want to understand what it's all about, is found in chapter 1, starting in verse 18. So chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Here's what it says. God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. And if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. See, one of the purposes of the book of Isaiah is to give people hope. It's to give people hope that God's faithfulness is bigger than their sin. That though they may sin, God's faithfulness is bigger yet. But it has another purpose. And that purpose is to powerfully persuade people to turn to God. Did you like that alliteration there? The powerfully persuade people to turn to God. So God says to them, come on, reason with me. Think about it. I'm offering you blessing and grace. I'm offering you a good life. Or you can just keep on going the way you're going and that will lead to destruction. Blessing or curse. Think about it. Be reasonable, he's saying. And in the first few chapters of the book, Isaiah then goes on to describe the vision that God gave him about Judah and Jerusalem and what awaits them if they keep going down this path that they're on. It's kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? And like the, the ghost of Christmas future where the ghost takes him out and shows him, this is your future if things don't change. That's kind of what's going on here with Isaiah. But then in chapter 6, Isaiah takes a break from talking about this prophetic vision that God gave him. And he tells us about another vision that he had several years earlier. It's a flashback, like when you're watching TV and all of a sudden you flash back to Isaiah's younger years, right? When he had more hair and, and he was uh, more athletic, right? And, and in this chapter, chapter 6, it tells us, Isaiah tells us his testimony, we might call it in our day. His testimony of how God called him, how he became a prophet. Basically, Isaiah had an experience which was so profound that it changed the course of his life. It changed his perspective on everything. It changed his perspective on God, his perspective on himself, and his perspective on other people and the world around him. And it set his life on a whole new course. And here's the thing I want you to see as we look at this. Isaiah's encounter had three basic elements, three basic elements, which each of us need to experience in our lives as well. 
The same elements that were core to Isaiah's experience of God, his encounter with God, are things that you and I can and need to experience as well. So the three elements of Isaiah's encounter with God were these. First of all, he had a vision of God. We see that in the first five verses. Then he had a transforming touch. God touched him in a transforming way. That's verses six and seven. And finally, there was a call to mission. That's in verse eight. So a, trans- a vision of God, a transforming touch, and a call to mission. Those three elements are what we're going to be looking at. So let's look at the first of those, a vision of God. And we're just going to work through this verse by verse and, and sentence by sentence. In the first Two verses of chapter 6, Isaiah tells us about what he saw in this vision. But before he does that, he tells us in the first phrase there, when he saw it. So first he tells us what he saw, but within that he tells us when he saw it. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, right? So King Uzziah had a very long and distinguished reign. He became king of Judah when he was 16 years old, and he reigned for 52 years. That means that by the time he died, most people who were under his reign had been born during his reign. Like, they had never experienced anything other than Uzziah. And he was a good king. We read in 2 Kings chapter 15 and 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that Uzziah sought the Lord, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and God made him prosper. Uzziah was a great military leader, and so under the reign of King Uzziah, Judah experienced stability, prosperity, and security. So to say this phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died, that's to say a lot, actually. There's a lot packed in that phrase. It's to say this, that in a time of transition and uncertainty, in a time of worry and concern about the future of the nation, in a time of uncharted waters and uncharted territory, as people were asking the question that many of us asked during times of difficulty, and change and loss. Where is God in all of this? At that time, Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Where was God in all of this, during all of this time of transition and change and loss and instability and worry and anxiety? Where was God in all of it? You know where he was? He was sitting on a throne. That's where he was. Uzziah was gone from the throne of Judah, but God was still on his throne in heaven, ruling over everything here on earth. That's what Isaiah saw. If you look at all the different visions of heaven that people have throughout the Bible, there's there's around 10 of them who have different visions, right? Just a few I'll mention. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, the Apostle John, like we read during worship from the book of Revelation. When they had visions of heaven, in every case, what did they see? They always see a throne. They always see a throne. In fact, the book of Revelation mentions the throne of God 35 times. It's almost, that's what the book is about. It's about the throne of God. It it tells us this. There is a throne in heaven, an occupied throne, and the Lord God sits upon it as the sovereign ruler of the universe. God doesn't sit on a stool. He doesn't sit on a chair like you or me, like any hired hand might sit on a chair. And, And, you know, we sit in a chair when we're tired after a long day of work and we need a rest. No, anyone can sit in a chair But only a sovereign sits on a throne. You know that? Only a judge and a sovereign sits on a throne. Those with authority and dominion sit on thrones. 
And this is a very important message in the world we live in today, both from, from many perspectives, right? We have all these competing worldviews, a view of relativism that says, you know, hey, I make up my own rules and you make up your own rules and they're all the same. Well, this message comes in and says, do you know there is a throne in heaven that means that there is a seat of authority, there is a seat of power, which all of the universe must answer to. It speaks to us in times when we look at the world we're in and we feel like sometimes it might be chaotic or we don't like what we see, right? Think about this. Isaiah was discouraged and depressed about what was going on in his country. Do you guys ever feel that way? Right? Do you ever feel discouraged and depressed about what's going on in your country? But God, here's what God said to Isaiah at the time when he felt discouraged and depressed about what was going on in his country, when he felt like things were spiraling into chaos and he was feeling anxiety about what was going on around him. God said this, I want you to see this, Isaiah. I am sitting on my throne and I want you to rest in knowing that. Maybe there are some of you here today, you need to be reminded of that fact for things going on in your life, for things that cause you anxiety. Whatever's going on in your life right now, I want you to remember this. God is still on his throne. He is still on his throne. And not only is he on his throne, but it says that he was high and lifted up. He was exalted. He was high above. He was in a superior position to anyone else and anything else. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than any human being. And the great, that greatness is displayed in the fact that it says that his, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, most of us don't usually wear clothes that have big trains on them, right? Like, I don't own any clothes that have a big train on them because they're very impractical. Like, when you're trying to work construction, when you're trying to cut wood, when you're trying to work on your car, it's very, very not practical to have a long train on your clothes. And that's precisely the point, by the way, of a train, is that it's not practical. You know, really the only time when we use trains nowadays with clothes is, is in wedding dresses or, or, you know, ballroom gowns. You know, that bride on her wedding day will come in and she'll have this long train and there'll be two or three people walking behind her, tending to her train and taking care of it. What does that mean? What is the purpose of the train? Well, what it means is means that she's in her glory. She is the object of special attention. The bride's not going to be doing any work that day. Other people are going to be serving her, right? She, she is going to be doing those things. You, you wouldn't wear that to go out, you know, and, and work construction and chop wood or work in the kitchen. No, wearing a long train means that you are a person of honor and dignity and other people serve you. And God, in other words, is so honored, so dignified that the train of his robe fills the temple. Verse 2 tells us that above him stood seraphim, each having six wings. With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. That word seraphim, it literally means burning ones, right? These are heavenly beings, angels who are around the throne of God. And notice they have six wings. And with four of their six wings, they show humility and reverence. They cover their eyes as if to say, we are not worthy. We cannot even look upon the Lord. He is so majestic. Can I tell you something cool, just kind of as an aside? Check this out. The Bible says that when we will be glorified, when we will be in heaven, guess what? It says that we will look upon the Lord with unveiled eyes. 
Now think about this. You know what that means? That means that even the angels don't dare to look upon the glory of God. They cover their eyes in the presence of God. But one day you and me are going to be able to see and behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled eyes. That's incredible, friends. That's incredible, right? We're going to get to do something that even the angels cannot do. We'll get to behold the Lord and look upon his glory. And Isaiah talks about not just what he saw, but then what he heard. He says in verse 3, and the one called to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. who The whole earth is full of his glory. Isn't it interesting what we see here? This isn't God speaking. This is the seraphim speaking to each other. And they're speaking out, declaring the glorious nature of God to each other in the presence of the Lord over and over again. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Why do they say it three times? Isn't it enough to just say it once? Here's why. Because the Hebrew language, the way that Hebrew works is that intensity is communicated through repetition. Intensity is communicated through repetition. Now we would say, like in our language, right? We'd say, holy, holier, holiest. What they say is, holy, 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 holy. And a lot of times in the Bible, when you see this kind of repetition, right, you see people say, Lord, Lord, you see it twice, but this is going over and above. This is abundant, holy, holy, holy. There is none who compares to him. The word holy, you know what it means? It means something that is special, something that's set apart. Holiness is the opposite. The opposite of holiness is commonness. In other words, God is not something common, he is something special. He is something unique. He is absolute perfection. Everything else is measured against the standard of who he is. To say that God is holy is much more than just to say that he's morally pure. See, if that's all we, we think holiness is, uh, oh, it means moral purity. No, it's more than that. Don't you understand? It's the, it's the extreme of everything that is right and good, right? It's wholeness. God's love, that's part of his holiness. Part of God's holiness is the fact that he's just. Part of God's holiness is his mercy and his grace, his wisdom. These are all aspects of what it means that God is holy. He is the standard of perfection. And they declare the whole earth is full of his glory. Think about this, guys. The seraphim surrounding God's throne, they're aware that the earth is full of God's glory. And yet here we are, and I don't know about you, I'll speak for myself, but, but I know that I probably fail to always appreciate or always be aware of the glory of God around me. Even though the whole earth is full of it, I am not always aware of it. And so I say, man, when I hear these guys, these seraphim who dwell around the throne of the Lord and they say, the whole earth is full of God's glory. You know what that makes me want to say? It says, oh Lord, that you would open my eyes. Lord, would you open our eyes to see your glory all around us? I mean, we live in Colorado, right? We can see it in nature, but not just in nature. We see it in the way that he works in people's lives around us. And when the angels say that, look at what happens. Verse four, it says, the foundations and the thresholds, that means the doorposts, shook. Right, the doorpost, that's where you go if there's an earthquake so that everything doesn't collapse on you. But that means it was really shaking, guys, right? Because the doorposts themselves are shaking. And it says the house is filled with smoke. The whole temple shook the doorposts, not at the voice of the Lord. Did you catch that? 
We're not even to the point where God's speaking yet. This is still the seraphim speaking. But the voice of the seraphim is so powerful as they're praising the Lord that it's shaking the place that they're in. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that challenging as I was studying this and reading this because, I mean, I don't know how you sing, but I sometimes wonder if the power of my praise would shake a tissue placed right in front of my mouth, right? Like, probably not, but can you imagine this place shaking, right? Doesn't it make you want to praise the Lord more powerfully? I mean, imagine if our praise that we spoke to each other even in this place that we declared to God was so powerful that it shook the doorposts of this place. And here's what's crazy. You know, you and me, just think about this. Do you and I have more reason or less reason to thank God and praise God than these angels did? Well, as far as thankfulness, I think that we actually have more to be thankful for. They've never been redeemed, right? We have. And yet they praise the Lord so powerfully, it shakes the the temple. You know, the reason they praise God the way they do was why? Because they have clearly seen who God is. They have clearly seen who he is. They've understood They've got a glimpse of his majesty and his greatness. And the result is they cannot help but praise him continually and powerfully. Isn't that what we need? We need a vision of God, don't we? We need to see him clearly. And friends, that's why we're so committed to studying the Bible here at Whitefields. You know that? Because we want to see God clearly so that we can worship him uh, appropriately. But look at what happened when Isaiah got this vision of the Lord. Verse 5, he says, Woe is me, I am lost. Some translations say, I am undone, meaning I'm just coming apart at the seams. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, this vision that Isaiah had, it changed the way that he thought about God. You know that when you see God clearly, it changes the way that you think about God. He came to understand that God was more glorious, more majestic, more holy than he had ever previously realized. And Isaiah said, woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. See, what Isaiah is experiencing is what the Bible talks about in lots of places and it calls it the fear of the Lord. It's this deep reverence, this deep awe that falls upon you when you really begin to get a glimpse of who God is. See, this is why throughout the Bible, like we read this morning, when people get a glimpse of God's glory and majesty, their response almost every time is they fall face down. They, they fall face down on the ground. They get low because they understand they're encountering something which is so much greater than they are. And this realization, this is something that all of us can have. This is something that all of us need to have. We need a clear picture of God that the fear of the Lord might fall upon us. You probably have heard the verse, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But there are some other great verses about the fear of the Lord. Let me just give you two. Psalm 25, verse 14, it says this, Friendship with God is reserved for those who reverence him. Friendship with God is reserved for those who reverence him. Uh, Another uh, passage says this, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that saves us from the snares of death. Friends, the fear of the Lord is is an important thing that we wrap our minds around. We need to get this. See, Isaiah, when he saw who God was, he was full of reverent awe And it changed the way he thought about God. He realized that God was much greater, much more holy than he had ever realized before. See, here's the deal. A true encounter with God 
cannot leave you unchanged. A true encounter with God cannot leave you unchanged. And like Isaiah, that's what we need. We need a clear vision of who God is, that he is holy, that he is high above us, that is he who sits on the throne over all the universe. This vision also changed the way that Isaiah thought about himself. It changed the way Isaiah thought about himself. See, having seen God for who God was, Isaiah was incredibly humbled, and he realized that he has a problem Right? Because God is holy and he is not. God is holy and he is unholy. And he says, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is realizing and confessing his sin. His pride is broken. He's got nothing left, right? He's just humbled before God. And that's a great place to be, friends. Do you realize that? You know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, Blessed are you if you are poor in spirit. And you know that word blessed? It actually, it should be better translated, happy. It's the Greek word makarios, which literally means happy. Oh, how happy are you who are poor in spirit. And maybe you've read that before and you've been like, I'm confused, right? How does that make me happy if I'm poor in spirit, right? Like, here's what he says. Blessed are you, happy are you, if you are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying is that the prerequisite, the first step, the first part in receiving salvation, the first thing that has to happen is you have to come to terms. You have to realize that you are spiritually bankrupt, Right? That you are just broken and humble before God. And you say, well, I don't want to be broken and humble. But Jesus says, happy will you be, blessed will you be if you get to that place of humble brokenness before God where you say, you know what? I am undone. I am a person of unclean lips. And you are a holy God. And I don't even compare. The first element of Isaiah's encounter with God was his vision of God. The second element is this transforming touch that we see in verse 6. One of the seraphim flies and grabs this coal with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. See, Isaiah understood that he was in trouble in the presence of a holy God as a sinful man. But then God acted. God acted on Isaiah's behalf for his good. He acted and he cleansed Isaiah of his sin. Guys, this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of what God does for us in Jesus. It says that his sin was atoned for. Atonement, you know what it means? It means to pay a debt. It means to settle something that's causing division between people. And the message here is this, very important. Only God can atone for sin. Only God can cleanse us. Only God can remove your debt and remove your guilt. That's not something that you can do for yourself. Isaiah couldn't do it for himself. It had to be an act of God. See, Isaiah knew what the problem was. God was holy. He was not. God was a righteous judge. He was a sinful man. And to make matters worse, Isaiah understood there was absolutely nothing he could do to fix that problem, to right that wrong. See, there was nothing he could do to go back and take back the things that he had done in the past. There was nothing he could do to remove his guilt or pay his debt. Isaiah felt remorse over his sin. He felt really bad about it. But friends, we have to admit that's not enough. Like, just feeling bad can't be enough. You might remember, on the night before Jesus was crucified, the Lord's Supper, all that stuff, they leave that place. Two of his 12 disciples turned their backs on him and denied him. 
Two of his 12 disciples betrayed him. One was Judas, who handed him over to the authorities. The other one was Peter, who denied that he ever even knew him. Now, both of those people betrayed Jesus. Both of them turned their backs on Jesus on the same night. They both sinned. They both did something wrong. They both fell short. But when you look at what happened after that, how they both responded to that, they had very different responses. See, Judas, it says that he felt remorse for what he did. He felt sorry for what he did. In fact, he felt so bad about what he had done that he went out and he hanged himself. He committed suicide. Peter, on the other hand, what did he do? Well, he returned to Jesus and Jesus forgave him and embraced him. And not only did Jesus forgive him, but Jesus restored him. And Peter went on to be used by God in great ways in the early church. And so the question is this, what will you do? What will I do with our sense of guilt, our sense of inadequacy, our sense of regret over our sin and the things that we've committed? Will you just feel bad about them? Friends, that's not enough. Or, or will you do this? This is what most, most people today, it seems, do. You try to make yourself feel better about it, right? You tell yourself, hey, well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. And, uh, and you know, I'm at, least, at least I'm not as bad as some people out there. There's some really bad people out there. I'm, I'm not even nearly as bad as them. And, hey, you know what? It's fine because I try my best. I try to be a good person. Now, I think if we're honest, we have to admit None of us actually tries our best. None of us actually tries truly our best. And secondly, comparing ourselves to other people and thinking that, well, hey, I'm not that bad because other people are worse than me. Number one, that's faulty logic. And number two, you know what else that does? It's actually dangerous because it builds into you a sense of superiority over other people. And that's actually dangerous. So that can't be the solution. No, what we need to do is not just try to placate ourselves, not just try to make ourselves feel better by telling ourselves that everything's okay and we don't have anything to worry about. Friends, we do have something to worry about. It's, it is a big deal. There's a God in heaven who sits on a throne and everyone has to answer to him and he is holy and that's the standard. And it's impossible to see that and not be struck by the sense of healthy reverence and fear that says, oh man, I'm in trouble. I'm lost. I'm a person of unclean lips. I don't measure up. But the question is, what will you do with that? You can respond like Judas, who, who felt really bad, and he let guilt just eat him up inside until he couldn't take it anymore. Or you can be like Peter, who returned to Jesus and, em, and was embraced by Jesus and received grace and forgiveness and salvation. You know, guilt is an awful thing. I don't wish that on anybody. Guilt is terrible. It's literally toxic, not just to your psyche, but it's also toxic to your body. I looked up this thing on WebMD, right? They actually have a whole section on guilt. And here's what WebMD says about the physical impact of guilt on your body. It says it leads to cardiovascular disease. It says it leads to autoimmune disorders. And it leads to gastrointestinal problems. But one of the effects of receiving forgiveness from God like this text tells us in verse 7, is that your guilt is removed. That's good news. Every one of us needs this kind of encounter with God like Isaiah had, where we see God clearly, 
which gives us a new perspective on, uh, on God and on ourselves. We need to experience God's transforming touch by which he atones for our sins and removes our guilt. And then when that happens, it inevitably leads to this third and final element of Isaiah's encounter with God, which is, in verse 8, this calling to mission. The impact that this vision had on Isaiah's life is that it changed the way he thought about the purpose and the goal and the meaning of his life. From this moment on, he was so changed that he could no longer just live his life anymore for his own comfort, for his own pleasure. He has to live for something bigger than that, something bigger than himself. He has to live for God's glory and God's mission. It says in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. See, this vision not only changed how he thought about God, it also changed the way he thought about other people. See, he came to this realization that he was a sinner, but God had graciously reached out to him and atoned for his sins and removed his guilt, and that's why he could stand there in the presence of God unafraid. And as a result of having experienced that, Isaiah now wants to share that experience, share that good news with other people. He wants to help other people see who God is what God is like, how great and majestic and powerful he is, and therefore how, how serious our sins actually are, and yet how good and gracious God is to those who humble themselves before him. He wants people to know that God is a great judge, but that he is also a great redeemer. He's a great savior, and they will turn to him. If you will turn to him and humble yourself before him, he'll give you joy and hope, beauty and life now and forever. And here's the deal. When you get a clear vision of God, it causes you to see the world in a whole new way. A clear vision of God will give you a different vision of other people. A clear vision of God gives you a different vision of other people. You'll begin to see them the way that God sees them. You'll begin to love people you didn't love before. You'll begin to love people who, by all worldly standards, right, should be your enemies because of the way, the things that they do and the, the things that they believe that you don't believe or the way that they see the world that you don't see the world. But what happens is, like Isaiah, when you get a clear vision of God, when God touches you in that transforming way to cleanse you and remove your guilt, it creates in you a desire not just to avoid the darkness of the world, but to be light in the darkness of the world. Because that's what Jesus did for us, right? He could have avoided us to keep himself pure, but he entered into our darkness so that he might bring light into that darkness. And we get to carry on that same mission that we ourselves have benefited from. We get to take it to other people and help them to know that love and joy and hope as well. I want to challenge you to pray this prayer today and throughout this week. Pray this prayer. God, show me more of you so that I might see everything else differently as a result. God, show me more of you that I might see everything else differently as a result. You know what? You don't have to go across the world. You don't have to go even just to the inner cities of, of our country to be on mission for God. Everywhere you go, in your workplace, in your school, grocery store, your mom's group, wherever you're at, there are hurting people. There are people who are carrying burdens of guilt. There are people who are searching for salvation in things that will not give them what they're looking for. And, and God, this may ask God this week, ask God this week to help you see people the way that he sees them. The vision Isaiah had, it didn't just cause him to think differently. It caused him to act differently, right? So he did something as well. 
Now, I'll just finish with this. There's something very odd about this scene, and I want you to think it through. It's something very strange about this scene, right? Here's God. He's on the throne. He's in his power. This is perhaps the greatest picture of God's sovereignty in the entire Bible. And what is God doing? He's asking a question. That's a bit unsettling, isn't it, right? Like, this is God, right? He's supposed to know all the stuff. And there he is on his throne in heaven, and he's asking questions as if there's something that he doesn't know, right? There's something he's unsure about. He's asking us, hey, uh, does anybody know who will go for me? Now, here's what's more surprising. It's not to get information. Here's what God's asking, which is maybe even more surprising. He's asking for volunteers. Can I get a volunteer, right? Like, God is asking for a person because God wants to reach the world through people, He wants willing people. Now, wait a second, right? Isn't he the sovereign ruler over all of creation? A God like that doesn't need to ask for volunteers. He can just command whoever he wants to do whatever he wants them to do, right? He can command an angel. They probably do an even better job than you and me. And yet what he wants is willing, surrendered servants. People who have gotten a glimpse of his glory And they've been changed as a result. They've gotten a glimpse of his holiness. They've been convicted of their sin. They've received grace and forgiveness. And now out of the overflow of a thankful heart, an awe-filled heart, they want to serve him. They want to do his work in the world. And they're eager to do it. They put that life-giving message of the gospel. They want to take it to other people as well. Guys, God's asking the same question today. You know that. He's asking the same question today. Who will go? Whom can I send? There is a divine commission, but as part of that, there's a human part as well. There's a human obedience to respond to the question and go. And Isaiah responds enthusiastically, energetically. Here I am, send me. The reason he responds so emphatically is because he's gotten a vision of God. He's experienced the grace of God. Let me ask you this today. Will you be the answer to God's question that he's asking? Because he's asking that same question. Who will go? Whom can I send? Will you be the answer to that question today? Will you be the one who says, yes, I will go and carry this mission on in the world? What kind of what things could create a heart like that in a person? Well, like Isaiah, you get a clear vision of God. You're touched by God in a transforming way. Your sins are forgiven. You receive grace. And we see that now we see clearly the needs of other people and what they need. See, Isaiah got a clear vision of who God was. He repented of his sins. He received God's grace. And he responded to God's call to go out on mission. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, Christ's love compels us. It controls us. And he says this, so that we who, you know, receive this grace, it says we can no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. Now, maybe you've never had a vision like Isaiah's vision of God, but here's the thing. The Bible tells us that all of us have seen the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. If I were to give you a a job today, right? If I were to tell you, hey, here's your job for the day. I want you to go and I want you to look at the sun. Really, don't do it, okay? Because here's what's going to happen. It will burn your retinas. You cannot look on the flaming glory of the burning sun without losing your sight, right? It's too powerful. So if you want to look at the sun, you know what you have to do? You have to use a filter. 
You need a filter. The only way you can see the glory of the sun is through a filter. And do you understand that's what Jesus Christ is for us? The Bible says that he is the visible image of the invisible God, right? In Jesus, God came to us so that we could see him, so that we could hear him, so that we could look at him and behold God's grace, God's love, God's wisdom, who God is. And Jesus, he lived that holy life, that life that we should have lived, but we fall short of so many times. And in Jesus, God acted to atone for our sins by his death on the cross, right, so that our guilt could be removed. Jesus answered the call of the Father to go on mission to us, and then he gives us the Father's mission that we can go on mission in the world. And when you truly see him, when you truly see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, like Isaiah, you're going to be moved to worship him, to repent of your sins, to receive grace and forgiveness, and to respond to be part of his mission. Will we do that today? Lord, we are challenged and encouraged and moved by this vision that Isaiah had of you, Lord, seated on your throne. Lord, I know there are some of us here today, we need to be reminded of that, Lord, because we're struggling with anxieties and, and worries. Lord, would, would you help us to really, truly trust in the fact that you are seated on the throne? And no matter what's going on in our lives and in our world and even in our country, Lord, you are seated on your throne. Lord, I pray also for us, Lord, that we would truly be encouraged by the, by the acts of the seraphim who, who declare your praise continuously so much that it shakes the temple. Lord, would you also just encourage us, Lord, like Isaiah, may we be those who respond to your call when you say, whom will I send? Who will go for me? Lord, may we be the answer to your question. May we be those who say, yes, Lord, send me. Send me. As I go out into my life from here, wherever I go, Lord, may I be on mission for you and with you. Lord, would you do that? Would you give us the strength by your spirit to carry that out for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 